as I've said before here, when I was about 12 years old, my youth group challenged us to read through the Bible in a year. And I'm sure there were many parts that I I enjoyed and I I learned something from, but the, the parts that I really remember are the parts that I struggled with. One of those was the book of Job. I just had no idea what was going on as I was reading it. I did not understand what the suffering was all about, or the lengthy arguments, or the the, the strange poetry. It just all seemed to me incomprehensible and irrelevant to my life. But my dad had this really old Bible commentary, written by a guy called Matthew Henry in 1706, So so the language was very old, very ancient, archaic language. But despite this, it just gave me my first insight into what this book was all about. It started to make a little bit of sense. And I started to see how incredibly relevant this book is to the world today. Now I've read this book of Job many times since then. That was a long time ago since I was 12 years old. But I still struggle with it. The suffering and the grief described in it is still uncomfortable and distressing. The poetry and the the long speeches are, are still complex and at times confusing. The issues that it wrestles with are really demanding. And the answers that it gives at the end, well, they're really challenging to each one of us. But despite this, this book has really helped me, especially in thinking about this holy issue of suffering. I've often gone to the truths contained in this book to help me in my own personal struggles, but also as I, as I try and share with other people as they go through times of suffering too. So despite all my apprehensions, we're going to take some time to look at this book of Job. We're not going to go through every chapter. Some of you will be glad to hear that because there's 42 of them, so that would take a long time. And we might not be able to answer every question that you have. Even the Bible scholars, they argue over those kind of things. And this also might raise some really painful issues in our lives, especially if, if for those of us who have gone through really intense times of suffering in our lives. So I don't really want to sound at all that any of us have all of these issues sorted. That, that, that some of us have all the answers and other people struggle with this. No, we all struggle with this. And I don't want to give kind of simplistic or superficial answers to these deep issues in our lives. So, if you are struggling with anything that comes up in this series, if you don't understand it or it raises questions or or problems, please just come and speak to me or speak to other people in church or or come to our Bible studies and you'll be able to answer, ask or get answers to some of those questions. But don't struggle alone. But my prayer is, like what Matthew Henry did for me all those years ago, that our time in this book will just help us move forward in our understanding of it. And that we'll really grow, we'll really be encouraged by the crucial lessons that are in this book. 
and that will prepare us, that will prepare us in our faith, either for working through the issues of suffering that we've already gone through, or to prepare for the times of suffering that we will go through in our lives in the years to come. So we're going to read from Job chapter 1 this morning. Job chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 just to verse 8, and Megan's going to come, and she's going to read for us now. Thanks, Megan. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and from, <laughs> and, and from it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, and a man who fears God and shows evil. Thank you very much, Megan. As we go through this book, I really hope that you'll understand who the main character of this book is. And although we call it the book of Job, or Job, if you're used to calling it Job, don't worry, I call it Job, you just kind of can translate it in your head and, and it'll be Job. We call it the book of Job. But that's not who it really is all about. Really this book is all about God. It's about who God is. It's about his character and his justice. His power, His wisdom, and the way that He works in this world. But of course, this chapter introduces us to the, na- the guy who's, who this book is named after. A man called Job. Look at verse 1 again. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, nobody is sure about lots of things about Job. There's lots of things that we just don't know about him. Nobody's sure when Job lived. Although many people think this is the oldest book of the New Test of the Old Testament, sorry, the oldest book of the Bible. Part of the reason for this is because there's no mention of things like the nation of Israel or the or the covenant or the law or the tabernacle. So it seems that it, it is set in a time before that. Job may have been around at the time of the patriarchs, maybe around the time of Abraham. And nobody is really sure either where Job is from. It says he's from the land of Uz, but nobody's sure where that exactly is. Some people think it's Syria in the north, other people Edom in the south. 
So there's lots of things that we don't know about this guy. But there are some important things that we do know about Job that we're told here. And I think one of the most astonishing things is that God saw him as praiseworthy. In this chapter, we're given an insight into what is usually the unseen world. Look at verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This is described by many people as the the gathering of the divine council. The angels, or the sons of God, as the Hebrew literally says, they came together to report to or to, to get instruction from God. And God here is pictured as the sovereign over the universe, holding court with these, these angels. But Satan is also there. Now, Satan's name, or this title, means the adversary, or the accuser. He's the, the evil one, the ultimate enemy of God, the one we were thinking about last week, as the devil. So why is he there? Was he invited? Or is he kind of like a gatecrasher? Is he an intruder? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But when God asked Satan where he'd come from, this is what he says, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. And I think this matches what the the rest of the Bible says about Satan, about the level of dominion or level of authority that Satan has in this world. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he calls him the God of this age. But then the Lord says this to Satan, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Isn't that incredible? The Lord here is praising this guy Job. He gave him the honour of calling him my servant. What an honour. And he said that Job stood out as different, as better than everybody else on the earth at that time. I think he's like a a proud father who's desperate to show you a picture of his son saying, have you seen my boy? Look at him. Isn't he great? God delighted in Job. God was pleased with Job. God was honoured and glorified by job. So he pointed Satan to him as exhibit A of what a godly man ought to be. Now, of course, we know that Job is not the ultimate example of someone who pleased the Lord, don't we? This week in our, in our kids' club, we were thinking about the, the time when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Remember in the Jordan River? How the heaven opened and God declared 
this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one who completely and totally pleased the Lord. He is the one who is worthy of ultimate praise. But in this way, Job was foreshadowing Jesus. He was like a a preview of Jesus, pointing forward to the one who would ultimately be the, the ultimate example of what a godly man should be. But he also challenges us that we should live a life that also pleases the Lord. In some way, we are also called to honour God, to bring Him glory and be a witness to God, about God, not just to the people around us, but also to the unseen world. There's a verse in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. As a church, we are called to be a witness in this world. We're called to declare something of God's goodness and grace to the people all around us. But we're also called in some way to be a witness to God's goodness and grace to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. To be a declaration of God's greatness to this unseen world. So we are called to live lives that please the Lord. We're called to live lives that bring Him glory. This, of course, was Paul's ambition. He says this in 2 Corinthians again. We make it our goal to please Him. So is that your goal? Is that our ambition in life? Is that our deepest desire? Are we seeking to live a life that will be praiseworthy in God's sight? But what does that kind of life look like? How did Job please God? Why was Job's life praiseworthy? Well, first of all, I think it was his purity in his life. This is what the Lord said in verse 8. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is such a a key truth in these opening chapters of Job that it's repeated a number of times. It's repeated by the Lord in chapter 2 and verse 3. It's also the way that Job is introduced in chapter 1 verse 1. So what does it mean? Well, I think it means that Job's a man of integrity. 
This idea of being blameless is that he didn't have any hidden sin in his life. He wasn't a hypocrite who claimed to be one thing and was actually, he was doing the other. He was the same on the inside as on the outside. He was blameless. He's also a man of decency. Or he was upright. He behaved right in his dealings with other people. He, he wasn't crooked. He was someone that you could trust. They would do the right thing. They would act in a correct way. As a result, he was a man of morality. He shunned evil. He turned away from anything that was wrong. He loved what was right so much that he passionately rejected anything that would have been, would have been wicked. Twice in the first two chapters of this, of this book, it stated, in all this, Job did not sin. Then at the end of the book, the Lord again twice declared his job's righteousness and, and what he said when he told Eliphaz, one of his friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So this is a key truth in this book. That's why I want to really emphasize it as we start in it. Everything that happened to Job in this book Everything he experienced, he experienced as someone who was living a good life. An exemplary life. Do you get that? Everything that happened to Job in this book, he experienced as someone who was living a good life. It's crucial for us to get. As we'll see, it's the core, or it's this, this issue is at the core of the arguments between Job and his friends. His friends think that he must have done something really wrong. And Job is, is, is strenuously defending his innocence. And so if we don't get this point right at the start, we'll not really understand the rest of the book or what it's trying to say. Job was a man who lived a life of purity. Of course, that doesn't mean that he was sinless. Job was, was a human being just like us. So, and none of us are perfect. All of us have sinned. Only one person was perfectly pure and sinless. And Job foreshadows him, as I've said before. He points us to him. Jesus alone is the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is unique in that regard. But the book of Job is absolutely clear. Job lived a life that pleased the Lord because he was a man of purity, a man of integrity, a man of decency, a man of morality. And that's how God wants us to live too. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippians, how he longed for them to be blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like the stars in the universe. 
God is calling us to live a different kind of life. He wants us to be light in the darkness. To stand out as being different. To be blameless and pure. But Job lived this way because, secondly, he was also a man of piety. He feared God. Now that doesn't mean that he was terrified of God. It doesn't mean that he lived in dread of God constantly. But rather it means that he had a, a loving reverence for God. This is what Job says is the core of a wise life. It says this in Job 28, 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Job accepted and deeply respected who God is. And what he says. And what he does. And as a result, he he wanted to live a life that would honour God. That would honour and glorify God in everything that he did. That's the kind of man Job was. I heard about a book that somebody wrote about the book of Job. This is what it was called. It was, How Does God Treat His Friends? Now, I haven't read the book, so I can't vouch for that. But I like the title. Because Job was a friend of God. Job was someone who lived in the right relationship with God. He had that deep reverence for God and respect for Him. But he also understood something about the problem of sin. Whenever his kids got together, verse 5 tells us, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Some parents have a real problem imagining that their kids might do something wrong. If they ever get that dreaded phone call from the school principal, then their first response is, well, well, my child would never do that. But not Job. Job knew that all of us have the potential to do wrong. And so he knew that his kids could turn away from God in their hearts, especially when they got together and were having a good time. And so afterwards he would make a sacrifice in order to try and make them right with God. As I said it before, Job probably lived at the time before even the Mosaic law was given. So he didn't have a full understanding of how this all worked. He didn't know what the Mosaic law said about sacrifice. He didn't even know what we understand about the gospel. But somehow he understood the seriousness of sin. And the need for that sin to be paid for with a blood sacrifice. He understood that the wages of sin is death. So although he wasn't responsible for the actions of his kids, they were responsible. Even although that he, he willingly paid the price 
of their sins so that they could be reconciled to God. Out of love for his kids, he paid the price so that they could be restored into relationship with God. Now, of course, his sacrifices couldn't actually do that. His sacrifices were not valuable enough to do that. If you remember in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. No animal sacrifice can ever make a right with God. And so what Job did was only effective in his so far, because unknown to him probably, it pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Where Jesus, the ultimate righteous one, paid the price of our sins through the sacrifice of himself. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the transfer that can happen if we put our trust in Jesus. That Jesus takes upon himself our sin and he paid for that in full when dying on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. So this is what Job was pointing forward to. Not just in his purity, but also in his willingness to seek to make reconciliation between God and those he loved. As a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross. So this is what we need to do if we're going to live a praiseworthy life before God. This needs to be at the core of our lives. We need to have that deep, loving reverence for God. But we also need to have an understanding of our need to be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't stand on our own goodness. Rather, we need to stand on Christ's righteousness. And his willing sacrifice of himself on the cross. So Job was praiseworthy in God's sight because he was a man of purity and a man of piety. But I think it's interesting to see, see that, that God didn't just say that about Job. He didn't just tell Satan about that. He also showed it through the way that he had worked in Job's life. Job was a prosperous man. Verse 2 tells us he had seven sons and three daughters. That was saying a sign of great blessing in Job's day. Now some people might not look on a busy household like that as a great blessing. Especially when the bills come in to pay for all of those mouths to feed. But Job of course didn't need to worry about that either. Because he was also rich in possessions. Verse 3, he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was incredibly wealthy. Job and his family would have wanted for nothing. 
just a little aside, that didn't mean that he was a horrible, rich guy who didn't care about anybody else. No. Chapter 31 of Job tells us that Job did not trust in his wealth, but rather he used it to help other people out of poverty. That's maybe why Job was not just rich in family and rich in possessions, he was also rich in reputation. Verse 3 says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was somebody who was deeply respected and honoured. Job said that when he arrived somewhere, the young men saw me and stepped aside. And the old men rose to their feet. He was somebody you wanted to respect, to honour. But why? Why was Job so prosperous? Why was he so wealthy in family and possessions and in respect? Well, Satan said it was because God had blessed him in his life. Look at verse 10. We didn't actually read it, but we'll read it next week as well. Verse 10 says, Satan says, you, had, you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. Now, of course, we can't trust Satan's word for anything. Jesus described him as the father of lies. But I think in this point, he was speaking the truth. Job agreed. Because he knew everything that that he had was because the Lord gave it to him. As he says in verse 21. Job didn't think that he gained everything because of his hard work or because of his skill or because he was such a good person. He realized that everything he had was a gracious gift from God. He had been blessed by God. Now these are the kinds of verses that are loved by those who teach what's called the prosperity gospel. The people these days who go around and teach us that if we live a good life, if we honour God, if we trust in God, if we sometimes also give them some money, then we will experience a long life of health and wealth and happiness. And I guess if you stopped here in the book of Job, you could maybe think that Job agreed with that. But of course the book of Job doesn't finish at verse 8. In fact, as we go, we'll go on, we'll see that this book is one of the, the clearest uh, contradictions against that false gospel, the prosperity gospel. Yes, Job's early experience shows us that God can and does bless some of his faithful children with incredible prosperity. God can do that, and he does that with some of his kids. But as we'll see, his experience also shows us that God can and does allow some of his faithful children to suffer incredible suffering. But of course, even that's not the end of the book. Only to wait till we get to chapter 42 to see the ultimate at the end of Job's life. Where God again brings incredible blessing into his life. 
And so we can see that even although as, a, as believers we will go through difficulty and we will go through suffering in our lives, we can trust in the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God that He will ultimately bless His children. This is what the New Testament clarifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So I hope that we will be encouraged as we consider God's servant job. I hope it will be a helpful and encouraging little series as we go through this. But this morning I just want us to understand Her job encourages us to live lives that are praiseworthy. Lives that please the Lord. That honour Him. That glorify Him. That are a witness to Him. Not not just to those around us, but also to the unseen world. And that we live a life that's praiseworthy by seeking to be people of purity, integrity, decency, morality, but also piety. Having a deep reverence for God, but also to be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, although we need to reject the lie of that prosperity gospel, Job does remind us that although we go through times of suffering and loss now, we can look forward to that day and we will share in Christ's eternal glory that far outweighs whatever suffering that we go through in this life.